Well, good morning. We're currently in a series about the church, and we've been thinking about the body of Christ, the salt of the earth, the temple of God, and the bride of Christ. And today we're going to focus on the idea that Christians are the aroma of Christ. And so in a moment we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14 to 16, which is where that phrase is used. But I want to give you some background, some context before we get to that particular text. So my first question today is, how many of you have ever been to Rome? Anybody been to Rome? Yes, Rose and you were there recently, weren't you? Anybody else? A few, few other people. Um, Rome is a, a really lovely city. If you get a chance to go there, do recommend it. It's a very beautiful place. Um, and Kathy and I visited about, uh, I don't know, four, five, six years ago. Had a lovely few days there. Uh, obviously, we went to the Colosseum because that's one of the big tourist places. And next to the Colosseum is the Roman Forum where they have all the archways and the temples and all the monuments uh, from way back in the, in the Roman Empire day. Um, and then next to that, you have something called the Capitoline Hill. So you can go up onto the Capitoline Hill and there used to be a temple on that hill to Jupiter, the god Jupiter. Um, today there are buildings there that have been designed by Michelangelo and a statue of uh, Marcus Aurelius uh, there in the middle of the square. Um, but when you're up there, you can, if you go the other side of the square, you can see all the way around from the Vatican, all the way around to the Colosseum, a fantastic view. But that used to be the site for the temple uh, of Jupiter. So Rome is a city that looks back towards its past. When you go there, you're very conscious of its past. And uh, you can imagine very easily the days when the Roman emperors were uh, sort of viewed as gods almost. And the sort of glory days of the Roman Empire still very much in evidence. Rome was the superpower in the world at that time. The Roman army were conquering city after city and country after country. And after every major victory, uh, there would be this triumphal procession through the city of Rome. And it was an amazing spectacle. So you have to think something like Notting Hill Carnival meets uh, FA Cup Victory Parade, that sort of thing. You know, it was a, an enormously exciting day. Everybody had the day off. And they began this procession in a place called the Field of Mars on the west bank of the Tiber River. And they would get everybody organised in this big space. And then they would parade and process through the city of Rome. And they would go through triumphal archways. They would go past lots of temples. And eventually they would end up on the Capitoline Hill at the Temple of Jupiter. Uh, and that's where the procession would finish. So I want to try and paint a mental picture of the, what this occasion might look like and feel like because this is the background to the text that we're going to be looking at today. So we're going to go back 2,000 years to the Rome of Paul's day, Paul the Apostle's day, and the order of the procession would have varied on different occasions, but generally this is what you would have seen if you'd been there. This is what would have happened. So let's have some imperial music, Dave. Thank you. The magistrates and the senators of Rome were the first in the procession. And then the trumpeters and the musicians, they came next. And after them, the captives 
were led in chains. These people were destined for slavery, to go to the Colosseum or public execution. And then after them, the spoils of war, the captured weapons, the armour, the gold, the silver, the curious treasures and huge paintings of the battles. There would have been inscriptions on the paintings so that people could read what had happened. And after that, there would be floats with 3D models of the cities that they had conquered. And then after that would come the conquered king, the defeated king and his family. And they were all dressed in black because they knew that at the end of the procession, they would be executed. It was literally the end of the road for them. And then the Roman soldiers. Ranks upon ranks upon ranks of proud Roman soldiers followed. And after them, finally, came the Roman general, the commander of the forces, riding in a chariot with four horses, dressed in the costume of Jupiter with the laurel leaves on his head. And right at the end of the procession were lots and lots of white oxen that were to be sacrificed at the temple of Jupiter. And the meat was going to be made available for feasting for everybody that was there. Flowers would be thrown onto the roads. Along the entire route, the air was filled with clouds of incense, which was burning on the altars of the temples. Thousands of spectators waited, watched, read, admired, applauded, ridiculed and marvelled at the wide variety of displays. It was a bank holiday atmosphere. It was party time. Everybody had the day off and there was free food and drink in abundance. This was the scene that forms the background to Paul's comments in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14 to 16, which we'll read in a moment. (laughs) Thanks, Dave. So in the first couple of chapters in 2 Corinthians, Paul has been explaining his change of plan. He's no longer coming to Corinth in in the time that he reckoned he would do, and he's explaining that, and he's also defending his role as an apostle. He's still in the process of defending his role as an apostle and his apostleship in contrast to the ministry of the super apostles who were courting the Corinthian church when he suddenly goes off at a tangent, and he does this a few times in the New Testament, typically in the, make, in the middle of making his case, Paul cannot help but worship God for his great plan of salvation. And so he says in 2 Corinthians 2.14, But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. This is the vivid imagery of the triumphal procession which is, is, would have been familiar to all his readers across the Roman world. And it's as if Paul is recalling an occasion, maybe it was a fairly recent occasion, when he'd seen this triumphal procession and he's struck by the similarities and the contrasts between the Roman generals and their victory and the victory of Christ on the cross. 
If you were going to have a, a triumphal procession, you had to have five conditions in place. These criteria needed to be, to be met uh, before the Senate would declare a triumphal procession. First criteria, the battle had to take place on foreign soil. Well, Jesus left the comfort of heaven and he came to earth to win this great victory on the cross. You could argue that the earth is more naturally Satan's territory, but Jesus comes and wins this great victory. The second criteria is that the general who had won the victory had to have a certain rank in society. You couldn't be just any general, you had to have a certain standing. Well, Jesus, of course, has the highest rank in heaven. And unlike the Roman emperors, he didn't just delegate the responsibility for the battle to somebody else. The Roman emperors were quite happy to sit in their nice palatial surroundings in Rome and send other generals to do the battles. No, Jesus comes from heaven and he comes and gets directly involved and wins the battle himself. Thirdly, the victory had to be decisive so that the Roman army could come back home. Uh, We have conflicts going on all over the world uh, at the moment where they're indecisive and the armies cannot go back to their, their home countries. So this was one of the criteria. You had to win the battle very decisively and then be able to come back to Rome. Well, of course, Jesus wins a very decisive battle on the cross. He says it is finished. He wins the battle on the cross. He rises from the dead. And a few weeks later, he ascends back to heaven. Job done. And sits at the right hand of the Father. He goes home. It's a decisive win. At the fourth criteria was that at least 5,000 enemy troops had to be killed. Well, Jesus doesn't kill people, he gives people life. But in the sense, we have to give up our lives in order to have his life. And so in that sense, we die to self and we gain his life. But it's not just available to 5,000 or 144,000, but to countless people, millions of people, whoever wants to come and receive his gift of life. It is a total victory over sin and death. Fifth criteria, territory had to be added to the Roman state. Well, the kingdom of God will continue to grow and grow until Jesus returns. In some seasons, it sort of seems to go back a bit. In other seasons, it goes forwards a lot. Some parts of the world, it goes forwards rapidly. Other places, perhaps not so much. But ultimately, the kingdom keeps growing. And every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord one day as this kingdom is fully grown. These are the five conditions The Roman triumphal procession was a pseudo-religious event. Oxen were sacrificed. Incense was offered to the gods in thanksgiving. The victorious Roman general was awarded almost deity-like status on the occasion of this triumphal procession because they they dressed him as Jupiter and they put the laurel leaves on his head. But he would also have had a, a slave or a child with him right in the chariot with him to remind him of his mortality. He's, he's God for the day, but he's also man. Jesus is not God for a day. He's always been God. He always will be God. But he's also man, perfectly integrated, this God-man who gives us salvation. He's not temporarily divine. He's always God. And uh, whereas the captives in the Roman processions were enemies who would face execution or hard labor or slavery, Christ's captives are promised eternal life and freedom. 
such a contrast. So this is a how much the more illustration. If a Roman general was afforded such honour following a victory in battle, how much more should Christ be seen as one who continually leads us in triumphal procession? So Paul says in verse 14, But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. So Paul is thinking of himself and his co-workers as God's willing captives and victorious partners with God in this triumphal procession of the gospel. God is more than able to overcome our weaknesses and our ineffectiveness. So there's this sort of power in weakness kind of um, illustration here. Uh, And God chooses to spread the gospel through his people. He chooses to use us to communicate uh, the, the good news about Jesus. He doesn't depend on our great personalities or our great abilities to do that. Paul was being criticized by these super apostles in Corinth uh, who said, look, we're really eloquent, but when Paul comes to speak, he's not particularly very good. He's great at writing. He's very fierce when he writes, but when he comes before you as a church, he's a bit sort of wimpish, you know. So they were criticizing him for this. Paul's saying, it doesn't matter whether I'm strong or not. God's power is with me and works through me uh, to, to get the job done, to bring salvation to people. So he's rejoicing that he's a slave to righteousness rather than sin. He's a slave to righteousness and he he reaps the benefits of holiness and eternal life rather than death. So Romans 6.18 says you've been set free from sin and you've become slaves to righteousness. So Jesus conquers sin and death. He leads us as captives before him as his possessions. We belong to him as slaves rather than slaves to sin and the world. And we're given the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on in that verse to say, Christ uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. How many of you have ever burnt the toast? not, not, Not too many, but some, yeah, okay. You can't pretend you haven't burnt the toast, can you? Because within three or four seconds, everybody in the house can smell it, right? (laughs) Smells just go through walls and doors, you know, just go everywhere, don't they? So you can, probably the people up the street know you've you've burnt the toast, because it just goes all the way through all the, the walls. Smells, aromas, fragrances spread. If you've ever been on a tube train and somebody's got on with a a box of Morley's chicken or KFC or something, it just goes through the whole carriage, doesn't it? Smells don't have geographical boundaries. They just go everywhere. Uh, You know, if you're in a rose garden, the the scent, the fragrance gets into the air. And, And it should be the same with the gospel. The fragrance of the gospel should spread into the community and the neighborhood, goes right across the world. Wherever God's people are, that's where the fragrance of God's, uh, God's message goes. It's a great picture of power and weakness, this fragrance going in different places. Because we are Christ's captives and yet our lives are a pleasing aroma to God and an aroma to the rest of the world. We can share in his victory and get caught up with his agenda of bringing the good news to all people. So the task of believers as God's instruments is to advance the gospel. Uh, The gospel, Paul says, spreads everywhere. And our role is to be a channel for spreading that fragrance of the knowledge of him. This sweet-smelling perfume, 
which permeates the world. He goes on in verse 15 to say, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. The theologian Tom Wright says, The sense of smell was highly valued in the ancient world. The very mention of sweet-smelling knowledge in this passage could have awakened many different associations in the minds of an ancient reader. Now, Paul is thinking about this Roman triumphal procession and uh, the smells in the air on that day would have come from the temples, the incense from the temples as they passed by, and also the sacrifice at the Temple of Jupiter when they got to the end of the procession. So very much that was the sort of uh, smell, the fragrance that he has in mind as he writes this. It's interesting that we still speak of the sweet smell of success, don't we? Uh, It's a sort of strange phrase. I don't exactly know where it comes from. Maybe it comes from this. But it it is that sort of sense of the the success of God's gospel going everywhere. Uh, Smells sweet. If you look at a dictionary definition of the word aroma, it says a spice with a distinctive fragrance, an agreeable odor, persuasive quality or charm. So for the non-Jewish readers, for Paul's uh, Roman followers, if you like, the people that follow Christ that were in that sort of setting, would have thought of these sorts of smells, the triumphal procession. But for the Jewish readers, they would have gone immediately back to the Old Testament and that sense of the burnt offerings being pleasing aromas to the Lord's. There was that that sort of feeling that they would offer up these uh, offerings and God would smell the sweet smell of the sacrifice and be pleased with it. But of course, once we get into the New Testament, there's no, not, no longer any need for animals to be sacrificed. It is Christ himself who has been offered up as the perfect sacrifice for us. And so the idea in the New Testament moves on to uh, the the thought that we are living sacrifices as believers. So we've looked at some of these verses already in this series, but Romans 12.1 talks about uh, offering our bodies as living sacrifices. Or 1 Peter 2.5, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus, because we're a holy priesthood. So our lives should be a sacrifice Uh, to God. We should bring uh, a fragrance in the way that we live our lives, the way we worship, the way we share our faith. The message version of the Bible, just translating or interpreting, if you like, 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16, puts it slightly more dramatically as the message does. It says, through us, he brings the knowledge of Christ everywhere we go. People breathe in the exquisite fragrance Because of Christ, we can give off a sweet scent rising to God, which is recognized by those on the way to salvation, an an aroma redolent with life. But those on the way to destruction treat us more like the stench from a rotting corpse. Tom Wright, again, the theologian, says that God's triumphal procession makes its way through the world following the victory of Jesus, the Messiah, over death and sin. And people like Paul, who are in the procession, are wafting the smell of victory, the smell of triumph to all the people around. 
To those who are setting their faces against the gospel, the same smell reminds them that the victory God won means victory over all the forces that oppose his healing rule of justice and peace. In other words, that those who oppose are signing their own death warrant. So Paul is dramatically dividing people into two groups. He's saying there are some people that are on the road to destruction. There are other people who are on the road to salvation. He's saying there's no middle course. There's nothing in the middle. Because of the cross, humanity in the past and present and future, everybody is traveling either on that road or the other road. Jesus uses a similar picture in Matthew 7, doesn't he? He says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. We are either on one road or the other, all of us in this room, everybody in the world. We're either on this road to destruction or the road to salvation. And Paul is saying that the the smell, the aroma of Christ is, is good news to those that are on that road to salvation, but it doesn't smell good to the people on this road. They don't like it. And we have to, this is a very sobering statement, we have to decide whether we're on that road or that road. Ask yourself this morning, are you sure you're on the road to salvation? If you're not sure, then do talk to somebody else that you know is a believer and say, how do I get onto the right road? How do I make the first steps to get onto the road of salvation? I know they'll be very, very pleased to help you understand how to put your faith in Jesus. So let's sum up how we can respond to this passage. First of all, our lives should be a sweet aroma to the people around us, in our witness particularly. Because in 2 Corinthians 2.14, we're told there that we can spread the knowledge of God everywhere. So our lives and our words should bring a distinct flavor to the people around us. Uh, I was on a course probably about four years ago up in Islington. And uh, as part of the course, we had to do uh, a short presentation, a short talk. And one of the ladies on the course was an Indian lady, and she decided to do... Um, a talk about spices that she uses in Indian cooking. Uh, And she got us to smell these spices, and she talked about how she would use these different spices in Indian meals, which, of course, have very strong flavours. Spices enhance flavour. You know, when we belong to Christ, uh, our lives take on a new and a strong flavour, a different flavour. And people become aware that we're different from the rest of the world. We become distinctive in our everyday actions. That's what should happen as we're full of the Spirit of God. We're filled with grace. Our very presence can bring a change of atmosphere in a situation. I used to play five-a-side football over at Roehampton with a group of guys. Uh, We were all in our 50s, most of us, but then some of the guys started bringing their sons who were in their 20s, which wasn't really fair because they could run twice as fast as us. So we took it steadily, but there was one one guy there who was a great character. His name was Alan, uh, Liverpudlian Scouser, and... uh, Man, he, he knew some swear words. <laughs> uh, and uh, he, he, you know, he was a great character. I, I thought he was a lovely guy to get to know. But he used lots of swear words. And he also misused the name of Christ quite a lot. 
So I, there I am, I'm a pastor of a church and I'm sort of playing football with these guys and uh, thinking, this isn't, this isn't that comfortable for me. Um, and a few weeks in, I, I think somebody must have told him I was a pastor or something, but he just suddenly stopped using, <laughs> using the name of Christ in, a, in the wrong way. Uh, and we had some good chats, we had good chats with him about Alpha and all sorts of things further on. But um, he, yeah, just stopped. It was like, almost like, I didn't ask him to, it was just like, because I was in the mix, he sort of just changed. And, and that should happen with us. That we should find that there are, are times when we're in a situation where our very presence uh, can bring something different. We bring the aroma of Christ into that situation. Sometimes you'll be uh, with somebody and they're in despair and you need to bring hope. Sometimes you, you'll be with somebody maybe in the workplace where there's frustration or anger and you need to bring a measure of peace and a, an ability just to be a sounding board and, and bring something, the fragrance of Christ in that situation. Maybe you, you know somebody that's going through a very difficult time, bereavement, sorrow. In that situation, we bring comfort. We bring the aroma of Christ into that person's life. It is up to to us to be the aroma of Christ in whatever situation we find ourselves. But it should be happening simply because we are filled with the Spirit. Sometimes smells have the ability to stimulate desire that we didn't even know we had. So I don't know whether you've ever walked past a coffee shop and thought, oh, I desperately need a coffee. I must get into that shop and buy uh, a coffee. Or, so our oldest son lives um, in Birmingham, uh, very near Bourneville. And if you know anything about Bourneville, you know that's where the Cadbury factory is. And so if you walk five minutes from his house and you're right by the factory, you can just smell chocolate everywhere. You know, chocolate. And you're desperate to buy handfuls and handfuls of chocolate bars. You've got to have chocolate. That's, it, it generates smell, sometimes generates desire for something you didn't even know you wanted. And our Christ-like aroma can have the, that sort of effect on other people around us who as yet don't know Christ. Uh, I think one of the problems in our modern day world is that people don't recognise or realise they need a saviour. They don't realise that they, they need somebody to save them from the consequences of their sin. And, uh, and yet when people are around Christian believers, they sometimes see something different which attracts them. They, they kind of catch something and then they suddenly realise that perhaps they, it creates a desire within them that wasn't there before. So when I was at university or polytechnic as it was in those days, um, I, my, my first best friend as a Christian, his older, older guy, Tim, he, we used to uh, kind of do a running partners type thing. We used to meet each week, have breakfast together um, and just share the scriptures and pray together. And he told me his testimony, he said, that he grew up in South End. he wasn't from a Christian background. He said, I just started hanging out with some people that were Christians. And he said, I just recognised there was something different in their lives. And he said, I got to a point where I thought, I really want what they've got. Whatever it is, I want what they've got. It was the aroma of Christ, if you like, really, that he was sort of catching. And, and he became a Christian through that. And, and so... Our lives need to be witnesses just in the way that we are in everyday life and all the different situations we're in. And sometimes our, our very presence will generate some sort of desire in other people to know Christ. Secondly, our lives should be a sweet aroma to God. So our lives should be a sweet aroma to other people, but it should also be a sweet aroma to God in our worship. So as worshippers, we minister to God, 1 Peter 2, 5, spiritual sacrifices. 
You know, incense is made by cutting or breaking herbs and then crushing them into a fine powder. And then you add water to the powder, you create a clay and you form sticks or cones. And then the incense is burned to create a fragrant aroma. And that process eventually produces this sweet aroma, but it involves cutting, breaking, crushing and burning. There are going to be many times in our lives when we're in the middle of trials, when we're in the middle of problems, disappointments, maybe even a sense of persecution. There are going to be times when we feel cut up, broken, crushed, burned by life's experiences. But it's in some of those times, when we hit those times, those are the moments where we bring the deepest sense of worship back to God. That, that, that's that's a, a very acceptable sacrifice of praise to God in those moments. When we are going through it, really going through it, and yet we still come back to worship him. God loves that kind of sacrifice, I'm sure. It's the sweet smell of victory. We can be going through all sorts of things, but as we come back to him, he loves the fact that we minister to him in worship out of that place of despair or difficulty. So we carry the exquisite fragrance of Jesus with us to our places of work, to our neighbourhoods, to the school gate, university campus, the shops, the gym, wherever we are. When we're sitting in traffic jams, when we're travelling on overcrowded tube trains, wherever we are, the fragrance of Christ, the aroma of Christ needs to permeate every part of our lives. One lady said that she used to work in a hospital many years ago. She said one doctor would often light up his pipe when he finished his rounds and was on his way back to the office in another building. The fragrance of his vanilla-scented tobacco lingered in the halls after he passed through. She said it was not uncommon to see someone lift their nose in the air, inhale the sweet aroma, and breathe out with a smile. That's the image of the way we should live as Christians carrying this exquisite fragrance of Christ so that anyone following us will desire to inhale the sweet aroma of our Saviour, Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you call us the aroma of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that there is something about our lives when we we get to know you not just know about you, but we get to know you, that uh, brings a real fragrance. Lord, thank you so much that when we go about our daily lives, you can uh, use us, even, uh, not, not even through the words we say necessarily, but there's something about the way we conduct ourselves, something about our attitudes, something about the way we approach things, which people just sometimes catch something of that fragrance of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would make us more and more effective in that way, that there would be more and more of the, the aroma of Christ around us. And Lord, we know it will be uh, bad news for some people. They won't welcome it. Other people will be attracted to it. And Lord, we pray that people would come, become Christians and would, would be part of maybe this church or another church because they've, they've caught something of the aroma of Christ as they've been around people who have known and do know Jesus Christ. 
So Lord, we commit ourselves to you again. We say, Lord, help us to live lives which are worthy of you and uh, Lord, to bring worship, which is also uh, a wonderful sacrifice of praise as well. Amen.